the third place is about creating the space to have these really hard conversations. And part of what's necessary and why we wanted to have this conversation with you was this realization that in order to have conversations around difficult topics, the first step is to create safety. And part of the steps of creating safety is to make sure that everyone that's coming to the table to have that hard conversation has their basic needs met. You know, the ability to have a difficult conversation, quite frankly, is a sign of privilege. If you're hungry and you're worried about your next meal is going to come from for you or your family, then you simply don't have the capacity to think about race and gender issues. You just need food. So, you know, what are the basic needs that each of us have? How can we do the work of you know helping people meet needs so that we can have the dialogue? We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging empowering, empowering, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Dr. Liz, as she is affectionately called by friends and colleagues alike, is a social psychologist specializing in how past relationships unconsciously influence or reemerge in present relationships, for better or for worse. Born and raised at the Jersey Shore, she moved to New York City to study psychology and philosophy at Barnard College and research clinical epidemiology at the NYS Psychiatric Institute. She received her PhD in social psychology at NYU and has since been teaching a variety of courses on social and emotional development, cognition, and social behavior at the University of Pennsylvania, Brooklyn College, and NYU. Dr. Liz is currently a clinical assistant professor and program coordinator in the NYU Psychology Master's Program, where she teaches research, statistics, and social behavior, all while working to keep the day-to-day runnings of the program in high gear. She is arguably obsessed with social cognition and the ways in which our knowledge systems, needs, emotions, and behaviors are often unconsciously learned and become resistant to change. She is currently exploring in her research how the need for shared reality with others can interplay with experience to create meaning systems that shape one's values and worldviews. Dr. Liz, we are just so grateful to have you on as we begin to unpack how to have dialogue by first understanding this idea of basic needs. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Super excited uh, to lend my thoughts uh, on this. And expertise. And expertise. Oh, I, you know, I try to be a little humble. (laughs) Yeah, well, I won't let you be. I won't. (laughs) Thank you. But, you know, this is something that, you know, Maslow did give us a great structure to understand this question. Right. And, you know, Maslow, of course, is just one perspective on how needs operate within humans. But I think rather than kind of looking at it and saying, you know, is it the right perspective or the wrong perspective? It just sort of it does give us value. Right. To use this perspective to understand. And so I guess we can start. I can tell you a little bit about what it just is. Yeah. Right. Um, so so for those of you who aren't aware of it, I mean, you may have some sense of what it is or heard of it and think of a triangle. Right. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a triangle, you know, and that's a great place to start, because one of the things I want to point out is that it's not a square. It's a triangle. 
So this is a triangle that is layered, uh, one layer stacked on top of, of each other to make that shape. Um, and each of those layers represents a need. And at the bottom of the triangle is our most basic needs, what Maslow set calls our deficiency needs. Um, and we'll talk about what that means in a second. But they uh, layer up so that the bottom ones are most prioritized or most important and fundamental. And then as you go up on the triangle, they're important, but less fundamental than the one below it. And to get to the top of the triangle, you have to start at the bottom. And ultimately, you build up to the top of the triangle by um, meeting the needs that you have at each layer, and then you can kind of move up to the layer. Maslow did at one point update his theory, actually in the late 80s, he came around and said, I didn't mean it to seem like it was so rigid. So we have a concept of it being kind of this, you have to meet this need to get to the next layer. And mm -hmm. He didn't want it to seem um, like that per se, and we'll we'll get we'll get more into that in a second. Um, now, certainly, meeting one need is going to make it a lot easier to meet the next one um, because you don't have competing ones going on at the same time. But you know, he was thinking along the lines of, let's say, you know, you're high on the on the uh, triangle, things happen to you, right? Needs pop back up, and so you know, he didn't want it to seem like this sort of this like rigid, straight and narrow kind of path that we're on. But one of the things to point out is that the top of the triangle is smaller than the bottom of the triangle, right? So at any given moment in time, fewer people are meeting those higher needs. Mm. Fewer people are, are reaching them. There's more people at the bottom than there are at the top. Um, and again, that's why it's not a square. And so again, when we talk about trying to engage with people, we need to think about, well, where are they and where am I? because we could be at different places and we can't assume that everybody's going to make it to the top. But we'll talk about more about that in a second. So he splits this triangle in half, basically, and says the bottom part is called deficiency needs. They're needs that are triggered by their absence. So these are things that you need to basically survive and feel comfortable in your environment. So food, water, shelter, clothing, sleep, sex, these are these drives that we have, kind of biological drives, right? And yes, any given moment in time, you might feel hunger. But of course, as time goes without food, that drive becomes more and more and more pressing on you, right? So a neat way to think about Maslow's hierarchy isn't just where I am, am I in life, but also this moment mm. <laughs> yeah. that's pressing me, right? I mean, you think about when you're hungry and you're trying to do anything else. Sometimes all you can think about is, is your stomach growling, right? Yeah. So you have those basic physiological, and then above that is safety. So you mentioned the word safety, and that's one of the basic categories that Maslow has. And this safety is not only physical security, like job security or physical safety, like I'm, I'm not going to get shot at or murdered, right? It can also mean security emotionally. It can mean having a sense of predictability about the world. Uh, unpredictability, uncertainty is terrorizing. Uh -huh to uh, people, to humans. It's our nature. We, we, it's, a, it's our second basic need next to food is feeling like there is some sense of control and predictability. And so one of the things I want to point out with this deficiency need is that it's not just about literal safety, but also psychological safety, okay? Freedom from threats. So it's not just, am I going to get murdered, but the possibility that I might get murdered. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's not just what's going on in reality per se, or literally right now, but also what am I thinking about or what, what is my environment uh, suggesting to me that could also trigger that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, total sense. Yeah, I loved that idea of time because all of a sudden that visual of the triangle that you painted in my head, it it immediately went to into a 3D triangle, right? It, it like totally added up another dimension. And then just with what you said around safety is just as an employer, right? Like an employee being able to take risks, an employee being able to be brainstorming, to come up with new ideas, like the only way to even engage with that level of work is if there's a safe environment that they know that they're not going to lose their job, hours are going to get cut or anything like that. So to create the environment for the best value from your employee is the work of the leadership or management to really dig super deep in the safety idea. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about how like in that same sort of story that you're telling David too, it's like the whole point of having a job description or having expectations in your job and all of those things is that it's providing that that structure that can help you not be in an anticipatory state, but in a present state. And it's almost like threat is sort of being in that anticipation mode, which allows you or uh, does not allow you to bring up that creativity or bring up what comes naturally through safety. And another thing, first of all, I so appreciate the visual that you said. It reminded me of our episode on grief, where it was like uh, one of the, the, you know, the stages of grief seem linear, but they're not. And so I felt like it was the same thing where it's like, that he, Maslow said, you know, hey, maybe it was perceived in this way of being sequential, but it's not. And I think that that's such a valid takeaway um, that oftentimes I just am always wrestling with sort of the intention behind these theories versus how we perceive them. And so I really appreciate that distinction that you made. Yeah, maybe you are a, a social psychologist at heart, you know? <laughs> I definitely am. <laughs> It's like, it's not just what you put out there, but how it's taken in. No doubt. No doubt. And that lens. And also, I don't know to what extent he kind of later was saying, never mind, I didn't mean to, as opposed (laughs) to, it was you guys, you know? (laughs) Not my fault, your fault. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but it was late. It was like in 87 that he, Mm. he made that at like that statement. Yeah. But it's also important to realize that any given behavior isn't just driven by one need, right? Even something as simple as eating. People don't just eat because they're hungry, right? Maybe you're eating because you're hungry, but you know, you're not just eating the thing that's in front of you to satiate that. You're eating the chocolate cake because it's comforting and it provides a sense of, you know, something else. Mm. And so I think that was another point that he wanted to make that it's not just one. So of course it couldn't be this rigid thing because you have multiple needs going into behavior. Right. They're all sort of like working cohesively, whether one has more prominence than the other is a different story. But bringing to highlight, like one of my therapists in the past mentioned the acronym to me HALT. And it was that we are not in the most uh, in the best version or best state of ourselves when we're H hungry, A angry, L lonely, T tired, halt. And so that like reminds me of this basic needs conversation because it's given me this context for when to provide grace in conversations, whether it's with my husband or with a friend where there's maybe conflict. And to remember that, you know, like those snicker bar 
commercials. It's like, you're not you when you're hungry. So (laughs) it's like an anchoring thought that gives a generous perspective rather than necessarily holding them up to a standard that might be unattainable in that state. Well, the thing also about our mind is that in social psych, we talk about being cognitive misers, that we are miserly. We're like Scrooge when it comes to our resources. Even when you aren't hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and and you're Scrooge with all your money, you still don't want to give away a penny if you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Right? So how much more miserly are you going to be when you are hungry or taxed? They call it cognitive load when you're doing something else, you're distracted, or when you're yeah taxed, you don't have any resources because you've just used them all. I think that that's exactly one of the underlying issues, and I haven't seen very many people talk about it, but one of the underlying issues of what our society is really dealing with right now, like we're very divided as a country. We know we know all of that. But to me, the context of capitalism and the current evolution, I capitalism used to be this, in order for me to win, you have to lose. So like that Scrooge mentality, I'm going to keep all of mine because I might need it down the road, which you know, but I need to win and therefore you have to lose. I mean, even seeing Donald Trump as the president, that's who he was as a businessman. Everybody else has to lose and I have to win versus this uh, world of social entrepreneurship that I am trying my best to embody is changing lens. So like everybody wins. The cool part about that is everybody wins, including me. But and it is usually just a small shift in business that f- helps define that. But that that to me feels like the conversation and this transition that we find ourselves in. It's not a pie, and we're all just trying to get our piece of the pie. It's not a closed system, so we can still hold on to our own. But by giving other things away, it only makes our pile bigger. It doesn't mean it's going to go less. Yes. Yes. Even just social currency, like kindness, you know what I mean? Like it, it really does not take that much <laughs> right. to be kind, but I think people think it's a weakness or they think, well, by being kind, you're going to take advantage of me, you know? And I, I started to realize that, that there's different values that might be shaping what they're doing. Mm. You know what I mean? And maybe it's about teaching people about this concept of maybe it, doesn't mean you're going to get manipulated. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're weak. Maybe it doesn't mean that. Yeah. You know, so I I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I I guess we're digressing a little bit, but you know. Yeah, no, but it definitely relates. Like I immediately made me think of the men who are taught that you're not allowed to cry because you're not allowed to be emotional, like versus showing emotion. Maybe it actually is the strength is where that's found. Yeah. And it's because a couple of people decided that and beat that into them, you know what I mean? And it's just so it's, somewhat arbitrary if you think about it and you know that that's what gets me going you know like that that these value systems and these meaning systems can be so arbitrary right but that goes back to the the needs like if we are having a conversation about healthy masculinity and we're reframing no showing emotions is not just anger and happiness when your sports teams win but here's all these other emotions that you're allowed to have as a man um unless your basic needs are met you can't even have that conversation. So absolutely, it all relates to this. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, to be fair, that philosophy of how to, how you can be emotional was probably a way of the people who are teaching that, a way they coped, a way mm-hmm. they met their needs, how they felt safe, right? 
And so these are things that are handed down that are scripts. Again, we're, we're miserly, right? So you teach us how to do something and we'll just stick with that because it works to some level to keep me safe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Totally. It's like if, you're, if your basic needs aren't getting met, then you will, you will create it in whatever way will make you feel like you're satisfying that need that's not being met, that may not be in a traditional way and maybe not even a societally productive way, but it gave you a sense of, of safety in the absence of it. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And, you know, and what's tricky about this too is that, you know, it's unconscious. Right. It's, it's not that people are walking around and going, my safety need has been triggered. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, even if our body is telling that fight or flight, right, we, we sometimes don't even interpret it correctly as that. Right. So a lot of these things are happening unconsciously and then they're passed on unconsciously, you know, through norms and through things. And and if it works for a group of people and I don't mean works like globally, but like mm-hmm. it allows me to function in the moment. Yeah. Then they're going to keep doing that. So how does it manifest when it's not being met? You know, what are some of the interactions with others whose needs are not being met that you've recognized, even if it's not something that can be communicated? Like you said, it's sort of unconscious. Like, how does it manifest and how does it represent? Well, I mean, it depends on the need and possibly a clinical psychologist may be a little bit better at at knowing the day to day of these things. But, you know, I am a relationship psychologist. And so in relationships, you certainly see people doing things that are not good for the relationship. But obviously, in some way, it must be meeting their needs because they continue to do it. For instance, like, you know, the drastic example of an abusive relationship. This is obviously giving the abuser, um, in some cases, a, a sense of control. So they're meeting their need, right? And, and, and this is their habit. But of course, it's not something that we would tell people to do. It's, it's not good because it's meeting your need, right? Does that make sense? Is, is that answering the question? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I was just sitting here feeling like that's uh, like I wanted you to expand on more from the relationship perspective anyways, because that's pretty much the essence of what we're trying to get at anyhow. So sort of just realized like, wow, that's a perfect angle that I wasn't even expecting or realized about you, Dr. Liz. <laughs> yeah. And it, it made me again, go back to this whole tribalism that we find ourselves in. Like, one of the most basic needs is this relationship and to know and be known to love and be loved. Right. So I, I'm seeing family members and friends that are in a different tribe than me right now. I'm like, but who is their circle? Oh, there's an element of peer pressure and being accepted by friends that is shaping political perspectives or viewpoints. Yeah. And that's what I call um, shared reality. It is a basic need. This actually is a great segue because the next layer of the triangle is belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have physiological safety belonging, right? So belonging is about not only having warmth and love and care from people, but also having a shared sense of the world. The basic foundations of friendships, if you think about it, are that we perceive things similarly. Otherwise, it doesn't really work, Right. And so our relationships are basically formed and maintained to the extent that you have some kind of shared reality, that you have some shared basis of the world. And if that breaks down, nine times out of 10, the relationship is going to break down. Mm-hmm. So what people will do is they will cling to shared realities to keep the warmth, 
even if the shared reality is totally bogus, or even if they're confronted with evidence that shows you that you're wrong. Right. Yeah, facts aren't working right now. <laughs> oh, right. You know, because it's part of it. Of course, it's super complex and there's a lot more that may be going on as well. But part of that could be that there's this community I'm involved in that thinks this way and I get a lot of validation from them. That's part uh, safety, right? Getting, being validated. It could also be that validation could feed into the next need that's in the next one up, which is esteem. And Maslow breaks down esteem into two different things. My own regard for myself, but esteem from others. And as we grow up, esteem from others is more important than ourselves. Yeah. And then as we supposedly, as we become adults, ourselves are a little bit more important, but, but it is fundamental, right? So belonging and getting regard from others are kind of mushed into these two layers. Yeah. Gosh, I never thought about self-esteem as being that basic need and how important that self-love, self-cares to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, but also just the the impact of the external or the esteem from others really sits with me because first of all, I'm recognizing that I feel very privileged that that's my current issue is the top of the triangle, right? Like I'm sitting here feeling very humbled by the fact that like the thing that I wrestle with on the daily has to do with esteem stuff and how lucky am I, right? And then suddenly my... uh I'm like, feel like I'm going to walk out of this conversation being like, well, it's not, maybe not that big of a deal. And, and that's kind of like life giving too. And then the, the next thing that I'm thinking of too, is just the power of that external influence and how we put so much weight on it. And that, that actually really is worked into the way that we operate and that it's important. And that when we have void of connection through the pandemic and this in-person that we're finding these microcosms of communities online that I think are surfacing tons of different but smaller powerful communities because we can identify ourselves with something very, very defined when otherwise that was probably not the case. So that feels like not only that you can be seen more, but also that it's creating more of a spectrum that feels at this stage more divisive because there's just hundred thousand more types of microcosmic communities than there was prior. Yeah. And with them, each comes their own truth, their own reality. Right. Right. And humans have always been in this case, right? There's no, so you can like go to Washington DC and find like the ruler, like what is one inch you can, there was literally a standard that you can go and take your ruler and bring it and say, is my ruler, is the QC on this ruler? Okay. Right. Do I actually have an inch here? Right. But with knowledge, we don't have anything like that. So we are, we're lost. <laughs> and so if I think something, I don't know if that's true or not, right? But if you think that and you think that, now I can feel a little bit more comfortable, right? In thinking this truth. Now, if you've got a community of people who are outspoken and banding together, and it's also meeting these belonging needs, and it's also meeting these safety needs, you know, like immigrants get out, you know, it's, it's meeting all of these needs. Certainly, you know, it's going to be harder and harder and harder to break through because if you break through, it's going to now open up all of these needs to bleed. Yeah. It can get existential really quickly. Yeah. It gets existential real quick, no doubt. So moving from that place where there's, there's four tiers, you know, can you just sort of summarize and break that down and get to the, the top? Cause I want to get there yeah. as well. So above that line, 
above esteem is what he calls the growth needs. These aren't triggered by them not being or, or, or having not been satisfied for a while. They're triggered by you meeting the below needs. So once you kind of get, get up to esteem, again, maybe not perfectly, right? But you, you get a sense of, of physiological safety, belonging, esteem. Now you go up to what he calls cognitive needs. And this is a need for knowledge, for education, for expanding. Hmm. And then above that is aesthetic needs. So things to look nice um, or, or art, right? Um, and then above that is self-actualization which is where you are using your skills and your unique personhood to do something uniquely you. And then above that is transcendence. And that's when you are kind of not thinking of yourself anymore and you're doing things for others. Whoa. Okay. So now I have like a whole other thing. Cause I was like, Oh man, you know, feeling privileged with the esteem and then was also like, okay, there's some work actually that I need to do. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of things. And hence the therapy I'm in, right? I was like, no, it was just, I, I love the way that you can bring the visualization to this. And of course, to our listeners, like we'll we'll provide the visual too, if, if that's the way that you learn. But I'm sort of just sitting with this conversation and already, even though we've all probably heard of it, feeling like I've learned so much and it's only, we're only just getting started. So thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to answer your beginning question about, you know, how do we help meet other people's needs to get them to a place? My first uh, response would be, you got to get your house in order. Yeah. Yeah. There ain't no way that you're going to help somebody else. Right. If you're not straight. But it is so interesting because you bring that up. And I think of some of the, you know, in this uh, Eastern wellness world that I'm sort of plugged into, there's so many healers that that you know that there's representation that they're like not necessarily having taken care of their own backyard in order to do that and I just find that find that interesting how it healers and those that want to engage in these conversations or engage in this work usually come from a place right come from that that personal perspective that very close know-how it really does go back to this age old thing, put your oxygen mask on first, right? I yeah. mean, we hear this all the time. And do you think that since we're having this conversation that those two things can be done simultaneously, that you can be taking care of your own house and also extending at the same time? Yes. I love that you brought that up because again, it kind of comes back to Maslow correcting, right? And saying, wait a minute, you can do multiple things, right? I just think that you should have a sense of your house so that you don't end up trying to help other people in the wrong way, or maybe you're helping them to meet your own needs. It becomes about you, right? And so certainly that that is uh, part of it. But the other point too, I, I wanted to make, so I'm glad you brought this up, is that Maslow also didn't think that a self-actualized or a transcendent person was a perfect person. And some of them can actually be assholes. Like th there's nothing here that says you're going to self-actualize into Gandhi. Right. Now he did study Gandhi and Mother Teresa and things like that. And, and you know, there are some reports that Mother Teresa was kind of a, an asshole. <laughs> Very interesting. I, I didn't know that. I mean, I, don't quote me on this. I guess you are <laughs> quoting me on this, but um, I could be wrong. But I think that she was kind of mean and punishing 
you know, it's like revised history. Now they're telling you how it really is these days. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. She wasn't just this like, you know, kind human being, you know, and uh, Maslow did study her as part of this. I mean, he should have studied more women. It was mostly men. Mm. But he didn't say that this process turns you into a good, kind, perfect person. He said you can be silly, you can make mistakes. And so, you know, it, that's why it's a lifelong thing. You don't just arrive at self-actualization and you sit there at the mountaintop waiting for other people to get there. You know, it's a constantly evolving kind of thing, right? But again, and there's also many cases where people who, and I want to make two points here that are the flip side of the same coin. So people who don't have basic means can sometimes do amazing things in their community. Yeah. So one of the examples I'm thinking of is Michael Thompson, who just got a um, clemency from Michigan. He got um, um, taken uh, out of jail for being there for decades for a nonviolent marijuana charge. And so he's 69. He's been in jail for, you know, 30 years or, or, you know, the longest serving person in the United States for this kind of offense. And as soon as he got out, he is now doing work with, um, you know, the marijuana industry to make it better and exonerate more people, mm. right? Now, granted, the internet got together and bought him a house. So he did, he did, uh, he did have some grassroots um, people waiting for him and giving him some basic things. But, you know, he wasn't about, okay, I have to march up this way before I can reach out to other people. Right. He's doing both, right? And if you look at his Instagram, he's like doing push-ups, you know, he's eating all great food. He's never had ice cream in decades, you know, but he's also sitting down and, and talking with politicians and talk, and doing work, right? So right. you can do both even if you are working towards it, right? Yeah. Even if you're not getting all of those basic needs met. and Right. Yeah. Well, I thanks for that sharing that story because I didn't know of his story in particular, but I have heard of this push to move through those nonviolent charges that of people that are just sitting in jail or prison cells and they were charged on something that has long passed being a violent or criminalizing action. Yep, exactly. And so like, you know, for him to come out and just immediately want to turn to others. He's 70, you know, just, just, just about 70. It's, mm. it's incredible. But, but then you have on the flip side of that coin, plenty of people who have all of their basic needs met and then some, and they're Scrooge with their money and their resources. And they don't want to have the conversation. They don't want to do the work. So what's going on there? So it's, it's complicated, <laughs> you know? And maybe the, the problem with, with people who have their resources met who don't want to do the work is this thing we were talking about before with threat, right? It's so fear-based. I mean, when I think of greed and narcissism, I just think that ultimately it's coming from fear. At least that, that that's a peace-giving truth for me. Whether that's the case or not, that helps me have compassion for something that um, when I've related with either one of those tendencies, it's hard for me to make sense of it otherwise. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, um, narcissism is complicated, but some of it certainly is fear, you know, and that certainly it's, it's a it's threat. It's, it's a psychological threat, right? And the way that they have dealt with that is to build up a front, you know, where everybody's wrong, and they're right, and they've got it, and you don't, right? It's, it's, again, it's this idea we're meeting needs, but at what cost, right? And they're not recognizing that cost. Yeah. So again, meeting needs isn't necessarily always 
the good thing or the, the right thing or the adaptive thing. So it's, it's very interesting when, when you think, well, how can we help people who aren't, their needs aren't being met to have these conversations? The answer may be more complicated than just give them a house. And <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going back to the mother Teresa being an asshole. I can see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just too good. That's just too good. <laughs> <laughs> but I can see it in the, the hierarchy. Her, job was to help other people meet that most basic level of need and then she was at the the top philanthropic care for others but i'm not gonna give you love we're not gonna work on being nice to each other because people need their basic needs met of water so the kind of going up the hierarchy she wasn't going to be nice because that need wasn't relevant to the most basic needs and that's what was driving her. Yeah. So even even with unpacking if whether that's true or not, all of a sudden makes a whole lot of sense that it could be. That's exactly what I'm saying when I say it doesn't matter necessarily if it's right or wrong in, in, in how we're using the theory. It's the value that we get out of using the theory and exercising the theory and understanding these concepts, right? Yeah, beautiful. I think that, you know, the so I'm I'm walking away from less about uh, well two things. One, how important it is to get my own house in order as I'm thinking and striving towards thinking of other people. And then two is while there is work in becoming an advocate, becoming, um, you know, learning to change the narrative from I'm not racist to becoming an anti-racist, like, and that work within on that higher uh, plane, it's, it's almost I can do some things to help other people meet their basic needs, but it sounds like most importantly is simply being aware that the the awareness factor of they may or may not have their basic needs met. And therefore it's going to just be a barrier to the depth of conversation that we want to have. Yeah. Well, you know, also, and you know, it's not at the same level at, as what we're talking about in like rural areas and things like that. But I also, I work with master's students. I mean, talk about have not having basic needs, you know, these students, you know, are barely have food money, you know, unless their parents yeah. are able to help them and can do that. A lot of them are struggling. And then they're here, sitting here grappling with all these psychological concepts, at least in my program, you know, I mean, I, I sit with them every day and I'm just like, wow, look what you're doing. Like, this is amazing. You know, there's a college here in the city. It's a Community college, it's, it's there's a lot of really great degree programs that this this campus offers, but there's also a, there's a food pantry on the campus to meet these college students, and it's sponsored by Kroger. Kroger is based in Cincinnati, and so you know, huge grocery uh, put this all together. But there still is this psychological need, even if a student is not is hungry, they may or may not utilize the services because there's like the stigma of, oh, yeah. I can't fit in. So it's really just interesting layers of barrier for even that. Yeah. I mean, funny too, because when I was uh, in my PhD program, uh, two of my cohort members, they had a constant list of all the different receptions that was going on. Like, oh, the library is having a, a reception because we knew <laughs> that there would be cheese and there would be wine. <laughs> That's genius. Let's be honest. I love that. That's genius. I would have never even had that that forethought. 
Yeah. No, and like it's stigma free, right? It's like actually we're engaging with our community and intellect. And meanwhile, we're like popping in, grabbing a plate, running out. (laughs) Yeah. You're networking, obviously. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) You know, but you know, coming back to that point too, though, is what I've learned is like, I, I obviously I can't pay for their school. I can't pay for their housing. I can't, I can't, (laughs) what, what can I do to help them as their mentor or their advisor? I really feel helpless sometimes. But coming back to what you said, David, is like holding some space for them, allowing them to be where they are, having patience, you know, um, and saying, okay, sure, if you get this lesson and you get one bit out of this lesson, as opposed to understanding the the whole of the lesson, then, you know, that's for you today. And that's great. You know, that's what you could do today. Yeah. And sometimes being told that it's okay can go a long way for them, you know? So I don't know what that looks like in conversations about racism. Well, I can speak to like the tribalism, you know, with it within family that that feels like I'm in deep conflict with. For me, it was very helpful to see. And again, maybe this is true or not true, but it, it was helpful for me to assume that there's this basic needs of belonging that is being met where they're at. And while we completely disagree on politics at the moment, I could at least acknowledge that there's this need that they're seeking and, you know, to hold space for it in this loving way. And just to know that, well, at least they're being loved in this manner, even if I think it's unhealthy, it's, it's a need and I have to honor it. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, if, if you can connect them to resources or something that's a healthier way of meeting that need, you could try, but that's also not on you. Right. Yeah. Or your place sometimes or, or many times. Right. That's it. Boundaries are really important, right? And we can come back to relationship psychology and boundaries are one of the hardest things that people struggle with. Yeah. To define even. And yeah, because it just it's such a, a living, breathing thing. I mean, to even recognize that a boundary is being pushed is usually represented in, in some uh, unproductive way before you even know that you, oh, oh, that's actually my boundary talking, right? Yeah, right, right. And so I'm supposed to have the wherewithal you know, me expecting you to tell me when my behavior is bothering you in some clear way when you are overwhelmed. It's so hard. It's so hard. And and to, and to expect them to do it perfectly also, you know, it's it and really day to day life really requires a lot more understanding and compassion. Yeah, I think that my, you know, David, your takeaways really resonate with me too. But my my takeaway is sort of just the acknowledgement. It's almost like, just in that. And I don't know necessarily, like I'm also sitting here wrestling with that sometimes calling out when someone's needs aren't getting met may be really uncomfortable for them and triggering. So there's some finesse to when you do call that out or not. And then there's sort of the more subtle ways of acknowledging that compassion without having to name it. But I feel very clear in that that that's one of the greatest forms of compassion is just acknowledging whether it's tangible or not, at least within yourself so that you can operate and relate to them in a better and communicate to them in a more effective way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and, um, you're saying, okay, I validate what you got out of your experiences. I might not agree with it, but I can see how you got that to where you're coming from. I mean, my parents are from a different 
tribe than me as well. And this is just one example, right? I, I'm not trying to say this is how you reach any of them. But I know um, sometimes in, in, in speaking with my dad, the two of us had better time realizing, oh, that's your perspective. Because he had really bad experiences with the Teamsters Union and the mob. Right. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, no. Well, no wonder you, you know, oh, you're coming from here. Okay. Well, I, I can totally understand that. Tell me about that. Oh, my God. Whoa, wait. You knew people in the, you know, like it's just, and it, it becomes a bonding thing for us rather than us talking about unions, you know? And so I think the other thing to try to do is set the expectations of what you can influence or change uh, to be smaller and slower than, than, okay, we're going to sit down and have a conversation in an hour and I'm going to convince you that you're racist. Right. You know what I mean? It's even just about at first understanding where are they? Then saying, are you ready to hear what this concept is? And then can we talk about maybe once you understand that it's a concept, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's here, just this concept, right? What is white privilege? Right. Let's just talk about what it is. Let's leave you out of it. Let's leave every, but can you understand what we're saying from this, you know, and that's so hard. So, and it, you're right. It, you have to tread so carefully. It's work. Yeah. Right. And if you're hungry or angry or lonely or tired, it's going to be that much harder too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that I think that that's even again what triggered why this conversation is just so critical for me. I, and honestly, it, it, you know, I I would be surprised if we figure this out in a year or two. You know, it's going to take maybe generations. Yeah, a long time. Right? Yeah. And I think what's nice about it is approaching it this way, it makes you realize that maybe it's not so much this is a bad person. Right. 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 This is a person who's trying to meet their needs and has been misguided by their unconscious desires, by society, you know, I don't want to excuse it because it certainly does have bad outcomes. But, you know, again, it, it can help you approach it as like, I'm not gearing up to engage with the devil. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah, that that wraps it up so well. Like we have been saying often that the work of the third place is just beginning. It's going to take a long time. And that's why we wanted to start here and have this as an early part of the conversation because it is going to take a long time. But Boy, if we could all take these micro steps and if we could all invite others to micro steps and even in this basic needs hierarchy and framework, then maybe we can start to see the work where we want to go, even if it's generations from now. Because like we just said at the very beginning, we should have been having this conversation 100 years ago. Well, we haven't, but we can have it today. Mm -hmm. And so we can start today so that 100 years from now, we can be like, whew, okay, and we're on to the next level of hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, even to that, you know, normalize micro steps. Mm, that's, that's great. <laughs> right? I think that having this conversation with you has been exactly what we were hoping to deliver and more. And, you know, thank you so much for your ability to convey it in such a, an approachable and digestible way. Oh, thank you. I mean, this is I this is my passion, you know. It's so clear. And I think that like, you know, when I think of the the needs thing, I think if more of us were able to have the ability to be expressing the thing that we're the most passionate about too, right? That's that's when we're going to continue to find more of that homeostasis. So, it's it's truly been such a pleasure to have you on. 
Thank you. <laughs> so is there any way for our listeners to connect with you personally? Um, they can email me. Cool. Give us your email. Yep. Um, it's uh, ep915 at nyu.edu. Okay. Um, and my name is Chris Bolinsky, but I tell my students, you never have to say that ever. <laughs> Call me Liz. <laughs> say that five times in yeah, a row. Yeah, like, there's no quiz. You will never have to pronounce it. Um, it looks a lot worse than it actually is. So Chris Bolinsky, but yeah, you can just uh, reach out to Liz. It's no problem. Cool. Thank you, Dr. Liz. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Be well. We'd love to tell you guys about another amazing podcast, The Going Beyond with Randy Zinn. Randy is an author, mother, and entrepreneur who is curious about living a life that is always evolving. This lifestyle podcast covers health, both of the mind and the body, self-care, business and entrepreneurship, and cultural disruption, plus topics that we sometimes avoid. Does it sound a little familiar? Well, we think that you would love it because it does feel like an extension of the work that we're doing here on The Third Place. This podcast is a space and community for people who are willing to do the hard work of growth, get connected with their expert interviews, soulful explorations, and deep dive discussions with visionaries, survivors, creators, and movement makers. Their stories will move you to cultivate more strength and clarity during every step of your day. Listen now to the Going Beyond podcast with our friend Randy Zinn and get ready to live the empowered life you deserve. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts and let us know what you think.